We're going to do things slightly differently today. We're going to have our reading in the middle of the sermon. Uh, so we'll get there and you'll see why as we go along. But how about um, I pray for us as we come to God's Word and then we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you reveal yourself in history, that we can know who you are and that you interpret who you are for us on the pages of Scripture. Be with us now as we try to understand the story that you have clearly revealed to us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought we'd start somewhere a little bit differently today. I thought we'd start um, just by thinking about the kind of leaders that we have in Australia. I don't know if uh, you're like this, but I I think in general, Australians are pretty sceptical about the kind of leaders that we have. Uh, you'd have to say since 2010, this has reached an all-time low, you know, with the backstabbing, the kind of internal squabbling, the uh, power struggles and the, the ratty question times that go on. It's, it's driven many of us to despair in the direction that we're going as a country. During the week, I, uh, I read an online business kind of magazine called Forbes. I've never really done that before, kind of read the business section of the media before. I thought that's what you lined guinea pigs cages with. But I, I read this, this, magaz- this magazine and I was actually quite surprised because it, it had some really interesting things to say, quite relevant to today. A guy called Mike Myatt writes this, a lack of leadership isn't just a problem in the United States, it's a global problem. It's also much more than an indictment on global politics. It's a systemic problem that pervades every level of society. Our world is suffering greatly at the hands of people who have placed their desire to be right above the desire to achieve the right outcome. They confuse their need for an ego boost, their quest for power and their thirst for greed with leadership. Now, if if that's right, That's a bit of a worry, isn't it? But as you read it, it it does feel at least partially right of at least some of our leaders. Sometimes it feels like there's no plan. No one's putting up their hand to lead us forward in a positive direction. I think there's a sense that we're just drifting. But Mike Myatt says that there's a problem with leadership that's, that's much wider than just government. Even wider than business It's right down to the level of families. He goes on to say this. Why does all this matter? Because leadership matters. Whether through malice or naivety, those who abuse or tolerate the abuse of leadership place us all at risk. Poor leadership cripples businesses, ruins economies, destroys families, loses wars and can bring the demise of nations. The demand for true leaders has never been greater. Now, as I read that, part of me actually suspects that this is not actually a new thing, that it's actually something that's always been with us, just in different forms. Well, today, as as we've heard, we continue our series, the 10 Pop-Up Moments series, where we look at key moments in the unfolding story of the Bible. And the pop-up moment that we see today is one that's all about leadership. Because today we see that God's plan to restore this world is going to happen through His chosen leaders. 
And we see that leadership is both the solution and yet at the same time, it's the problem in this world. Now very quickly, let me remind you of what we've seen so far. The first pop-up moment that you might remember is, is creation. God makes us for relationship with himself and for relationship with each other. The second pop-up moment that we saw is the fall. We taint our relationship with God and therefore we taint our relationships with each other. The third pop-up moment that we saw was God's promises to Abraham. God promises Abraham that he's going to restore the world through his descendants. And do you remember the promises of land, offspring and blessing? That was the way God was going to restore the world. And then last time, we saw the exodus and the law. God revealed himself as he saved his people and as he judged Egypt. And he showed that he wanted to dwell with his people. Now, in between that pop-up moment and the one that we see today is a story of the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of his people. In many ways, actually, it's a story of a crisis of leadership. As God was giving Moses the law, right back at that last pop-up moment, the people were already, at that very time, walking away from God. Moses is still on the mountain, in fact, and they're making a golden calf. And Aaron, the leader who Moses left in charge while he was on the mountain, what was Aaron doing? He was hammering the gold for the calf. It's a failure of leadership. God leads them to the promised land, but they refuse to go in because they're too scared. And do you remember why they're too scared? It's because all the leaders of the tribes that were chosen to scout out the land come back and make the people scared, tell them that it's just not possible for them to take the land. Again, there's a failure of leadership. God gives them the promised land but they won't take possession of it. It's another failure of leadership. And then the book of Judges is just story after story of God having mercy on his people and them turning away from him. It's this horrible downward spiral. And the judges that lead the people go from bad to worse until finally you come to pretty boy Samson, who's the worst of the lot. Again, there's a dismal failure of leadership. The people have the land just. They have offspring, but they're being threatened by enemies and so they don't really have blessing. And at this point, rather than realise that the problem is with them failing to follow God, instead, what they do is they decide that they need a king. Not a king who will lead them to follow God. Look at what they say to Samuel, the last of the judges, in 1 Samuel 8 verse 9. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They want to be like the other nations even though God has chosen them to be different to the other nations. They're supposed to show the rest of the world that God is their king. But they want a, a king who will lead them not to God but to battle. Now Samuel feels a bit miffed at their request, but look what God says to him in verse 7. Listen to all 
that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. This is just more of the same, history repeating itself. And so God gives them the kind of king that they want, Saul. He's a head taller than any other man. He's strong. He's the kind of king who can lead them into battle. But the problem is, he doesn't lead them to follow God. And so again, there's a massive failure of leadership. And then finally, God chooses his own king for his people. The kind of king he wants. Not someone who's exceptional in any external way. He's the youngest in the family. He's just a shepherd boy from a small town. He's insignificant, really. And that's exactly why he's God's choice. What God's people needed was someone who would lead them to put their trust in God, not someone who would lead them to put their trust in a human king. And David's that kind of king. He trusts God. After many painful years, David becomes king. And the promises that God gave Abraham are finally looking like they're coming together. There's land. All God's enemies are finally defeated. There's offspring. The people are in the land and they're safe now. And there's blessing. At least there's the promise of blessing. And now that David's got space, he turns his mind from war to building the kingdom. So what should he do next? Build a bigger palace or a marketplace or a town hall, an opera house? Well, we read what he wants to do next in 2 Samuel 7. Craig's going to come up and read for us. So open up your Bibles. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Well, hopefully we've joined the dots from our last pop-up moment to this one, where we see God's covenant with David. Now, there's three quick things that I want to pull out from this little bit that we're looking at today. And this is the first one. David's not going to build God a house. God is going to build David a house. Now, David, finally at peace, decides to do what so many kings before him and after him chose to do. He was going to build a house for his God. On one level, that's great, that that's where David's mind goes to. And even Nathan the prophet, did you notice, he says, yep, sounds good. But God says in verse 5, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Now, why would God have a problem with this act of devotion? Basically, God says, he hasn't commanded it. He commanded the tabernacle to be built, the the tent. But since then, he hasn't said anything about changing things. Kings and emperors across the world over thousands of years built for their gods temples as a way of kind of showing their power and their status, and also as a way to keep the gods on site. The pagan way of thinking is like this, is that you worship your God, and because of that, he'll pour down his blessings on you. So increase your worship, and you'll increase the blessings that are poured down. But God's not happy with that kind of arrangement. God's the one who acts and intervenes for his people. He turns the pagan model of worship on its head. God blesses first, and our worship follows that. Now, if David, a man of war, builds this temple, there's every danger that the world's going to get the wrong idea about God. They'll think he's like every pagan God. There's a danger that everyone will think that God is on David's side because of what David does for God, for what David's done. And so he says in verse 8, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God spells it out here. He makes it crystal clear that he doesn't need David to build him a house. In fact, it's completely the other way around. God's taken David from being a shepherd boy and made him king. God's overcome his enemies. And he's done all of this completely of his own initiative. It's all been his free choice. It's God who is going to build David a house. We read that in verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself 
will establish a house for you. The danger with David building the temple of his own initiative is that he might, to start, he might start to think that he's doing God a favour. I mean, you can picture it, can't you? Poor God, living in a tent. It's kind of cold out there and leaks. We better give him a house. But God here gives him a sharp reminder that everything good in his life comes from him. God doesn't need David to do anything for him. God's put David exactly where he wants him. David's not going to build God a house. God is going to build him a house. And we see the kind of house that he's going to build for David in verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Through Solomon, God will build for David a dynasty that will last forever. The second point that we need to see in this pop-up moment is that this house of David, this dynasty, will bring about God's promises to Abraham. Have a look at verse 9. Now, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of earth, on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Does that sound familiar from what we've looked at so far? Do you remember Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. See, the key promises of land and offspring and blessing are now going to come about through the Davidic dynasty. This is something new in the story that's unfolding. Previously, the fate of the world was in the hands of Adam, who represented all humanity. And then the fate of the world was in the hands of Abraham, who represented all Israel. But here, Things are narrowing yet again. The fate of all humanity and all Israel is in the hands of David as he represents the Davidic dynasty. There's a a narrowing down of who God will use to bring about his plan to restore the world. And can you see where this is heading? I'd say you probably can. It's narrowing down to the one final representative of humanity of Israel, of David. Jesus is the true son of Adam, the true son of Abraham, the true son of David. Now, it's completely amazing the way these threads that might appear to be so tangled actually lead perfectly to Christ. A person who thinks that the Bible is just a random collection of semi-spiritual stories has missed the power and the wonder of Scripture. Peter speaks about this in in his letter in 2 Peter. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now that's one key plank in the evidence for Christianity. Jesus came in history and and people saw what happened. And the eyewitnesses, they, they reported what happened. That's the New Testament. But there's another plank of evidence that Peter draws attention to. 
He says in verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. That's the Old Testament. The way the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the son of David, is completely remarkable. It's not something that you could engineer. There's just so many variables outside of human control that come together perfectly in the events of his life, death and resurrection. The way Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is completely surprising and and unexpected from a human perspective. And yet, as you look back at the Old Testament, you can see that the events of his life, death and resurrection are completely expected and completely in the control of God. I mean, just read Psalm 22 and you'll see beyond a doubt that nothing happens by accident. Jesus brings every thread of every part of the Old Testament together in his life, death and resurrection. And if you don't believe in God, then I think this is something that you've got to have an alternate explanation for. Because these things were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. And there's just no way that a human could engineer these things. It's not like Jesus could read them off and try to recreate them in his life. There are so many variables, so many things outside human control that come together that you've got to have a pretty good alternative explanation to explain this away. Sometimes as Christians, we tend to read the Old Testament like we're panning for gold, kind of like this picture shows. I don't know if you've ever done it. I don't know if you know panning, but it's kind of like boring, boring, rocks, gravel, gold. Except when you actually do it, you never have that last bit. There's never actually any gold. (laughs) But we can read the Old Testament kind of like that. You know, we're just looking for those gold moments where we say, look, there's Jesus. But when we do that, we're not quite reading the Old Testament right. I remember reading this passage in 2 Samuel 7 exactly like that like I'd struck gold. So, you know, you're reading through when your days are over, that's David, and you rest with your ancestors. I'll raise up up your offspring to succeed you. Oh, hello, hang on. Your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. Sounds promising. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There we go, that's Jesus, right? I will be his father, and he will be my son. Bingo, Jesus. But then you read verse 14. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And I remember reading that and being a bit confused. How does that work? Jesus didn't do wrong. Maybe I hadn't struck gold after all. But what I was doing was reading Scripture wrong. Because Jesus says in Luke 24, all Scripture points to him. Reading the Old Testament, it's not like panning for gold. It's actually more like following a treasure map to gold. Every detail of every part of the Old Testament fills out the map that leads us to Christ. And today's pop-up moment does just that. What God reveals here is that he's going to work through the Davidic line from here on in. And that starts with Solomon. And Solomon does wrong. And Solomon's descendants, oh boy, do they do wrong. And God punishes them. But the promise is that he will not take his love away from them. He'll relate to each of them as father and they as his son. 
And this is where we see the terrain of the map, stark and clear, that leads us to Christ, the true Son of David, the true Son of God, who does what the others couldn't do, who sits on the throne of David forever and is the one leader who does not fail the people. And this brings us to our third and final thing for us to see. And that is that the fate of the people is tied to their leader. The promises to Abraham are going to come about through David's dynasty. And as the Davidic kings are blessed, the people will be blessed. As the Davidic kings go, so will the people go. And we see how this works out in David's descendant, Solomon. Because this is as close as it gets in the Old Testament to the promises becoming a reality. 1 Kings 4.20, which you can see up there. We read, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. There's the promise of offspring. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. There's being blessed. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines. There's land. And then verse 34 From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And there's the start of being a blessing to others. Through David's son, God's unfolding his plan for the world. As the king leads them to follow God, everything goes well for the nation. But here lies the great tragedy that we'll hear about next week. Because the kings fail the people. Because they fail to lead them to serve God. Even Solomon fails. He he worships other gods and, and that has tragic implications for the people of Israel. They follow his lead and they destroy themselves. They need a true leader, a leader who won't let them down. But what should we take away from this pop-up moment? We've already seen that we should walk away with confidence in Scripture confidence because of the amazing way that every part points so clearly to Christ. Each part's kind of like a part of a car engine. In its own way, each part is, is, is beautiful and remarkable, really. But you only truly understand an engine part and truly see its beauty as all the parts come perfectly together. As you turn the key and the engine roars to life, And it's the same with the Bible. Every part comes together and roars to life in Jesus. We can be confident in what God's given us. But the next thing to take away is that just like the people back then, our fate is connected with our leader. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, unlike them, we can have absolute confidence in our leader because we have the perfect leader in Jesus, a leader who won't let us down, a leader who won't let us drift aimlessly. That quote we had at the the beginning, you know, you, you could never read that and think of Jesus. There's just no way. Jesus is not motivated by ego. He's not motivated 
by power or greed. Because Jesus lowers himself. He leaves his power behind. And he gives up everything for us. He's a leader that won't let us down. Now, I reckon Australians generally are pretty jaded about leaders, which means we're probably not particularly good at following their lead. In fact, I think we're probably fairly gifted at blocking our leaders out. Now, I think this means we need to work harder than maybe some other nations at tuning ourselves in to having Jesus as our leader. We get on with life despite our leaders, but with Jesus, he's a leader worth following. You see, I don't, I don't pay too much attention to Tony Abbott, his example or his worldview, uh, what motivates him, his priorities, his, his direction. I just don't really follow his lead in those things. But what about Jesus? What about his example, his worldview, his priorities, his motivation, his direction. Are these things that we're actively tuning ourselves into, allowing to impact us? Are we giving them the time and space in our lives that they deserve? If Jesus is our leader, are we actively looking to follow his lead? Because in the end, Jesus is the one leader who can give us confidence that the promises that God has given will be ours. In Jesus, every promise is ours because he leads us to trust God and when we follow his lead, we can't go wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the terrain of Scripture, for the way that it, it's so familiar when we see Jesus that we recognize him and yet at the same time he's so different to any leader that we find in the Old Testament that he stands out as exceptional as the saviour we need and the Lord that we must have. Help us to live with him actively as our leader, to shape our minds, our hearts, our direction, what motivates us, Lord our priorities around him where he wants to take us. Lord, help us to fully embrace his good lead, his selfless lead, and to follow his example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.